0: Amen. Father, we just thank you that you're the author of the word of God. And there's not a question on earth, Lord, that you cannot answer. And so, Lord, we come to you and we ask you to be with us now as we learn the Bible. And Lord, I pray that spiritual mental cobwebs are cleared out in our minds. That there's, If there's any questions that have been burdening us, weighing us down, maybe even sapping our faith or affecting our walk. I pray that, Lord, the air will be clear tonight. Thank you, Lord, that your word has an answer for every question. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, shout out to your neighbor there. It's going to be good tonight. You can
1: be seated. God bless you. All right, Greg. Question number one. How should Christians respond to the issue of gender confusion in America? Thank
0: you for the first easy question here tonight. Um, that's a that's an easy one. We're going to start out easy and get harder as we go along. No, um, I got to tell you, I've never seen a nation in so much confusion and despair and um, anger and rage, and I mean it's a melting pot of of emotions that uh, are really, really rough and tough on people. This whole thing of gender confusion is another, another issue out there that um, is really rocking a lot of people's worlds. And I have to tell you that my answer as a Christian and my answer as a pastor is to always spring from the authority of the Word of God. Always. No matter what the question is, no matter what the issue is, I'm going to look at what the Bible has to say about it. Are you there with me? I'm going to see what the Bible has to say about it. The Bible is a book of absolute, non-negotiable, clear-cut truth on virtually all issues of life. I believe the Bible is the very word of God. Second, it says the Bible is God breathed. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is breathed out. Literally, uh, Theos, God, Neustos, breathed out. Uh, when it says it's breathed out of God, it's literally telling us that God breathed out the scriptures you hold in your hand. The, the, the Bible is a book unlike any book in the world. Can I say it again? The Bible is in its own stratosphere. There is not another book on planet Earth like the Bible. It is the Word of God. It's 66 books comprising one book, and it is the very Word of God. So I believe that it does contain absolute, non-negotiable, irrefutable truth, and, and that is where we need to go with any questions we have. I personally believe that there's not a question we can have that is not somehow answered in the Word of God. Now, first of all, the the Bible is very clear on how God created us, either male or female. Can I have an amen? amen? It's very clear. Now, the Bible says in Genesis 1, verse 27, going all the way back to the creation of all things, and particularly the creation of you and me, it says, So God created man, how, everybody, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male, now look, he goes from we're made in God's image to gender. He says male and female. He created them. Now we note here that God specifically mentions two things about you and me. One, we're created in his image. Now let's talk about that for a minute. We're created in the image of God. None other of the created creatures was given the honor of being created in the image of God. This does not mean, and I want to be clear about this, let me just really put this out there, we are not little gods. This doesn't mean we're a little god. We're created in God's image. We have similarities to God, and I'm going to show you a couple of them. But it doesn't mean we're little gods. The phrase made in the image of God refers, first of all, not to the physical body, because Jesus told us God is a spirit, amen? God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, because God is a spirit. He doesn't have a physical body, all right? So we are like God in this respect, that we have a soul slash spirit that sets us apart, from the animals and makes us just a little, little lower than God's other glorious creation, the angels. And that's a quote from Hebrews 2.7. He made us a little lower than the angels. We are like God on a limited scale in our ability to reason, think, meditate, conceptualize, plan, speak. How many of you have dogs? How many of you ever wish that that dog could talk because my dog will come and stare at me. I have two dogs and, and, and when they want something, they stare at me. They just come and, and it's unnerving to me because I'll be reading a book or studying for a message or whatever and I, suddenly I'm, I'm aware of four eyes looking up at me and, 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 and I know they want something, but I don't know what they want. And so I have said to them, would you just tell me? But they can't. You know why they can't? Because they're not made in the image of God. That's why they can't. If it were you staring at me, you could tell me what you want. But the animals cannot. Uh, Animals will never look in a mirror and say, where did I come from? Right? Because they don't care where they came from. Where they came from is no issue to them. You know why? Because they cannot conceptualize philosophical, theological issues. They can't. They don't have the ability to do it. But see, that's something God does, and he gave us that ability. Okay? Okay? Uh, An animal is never going to look in the mirror and say, I need to lose some weight. Right? Because they don't care how big they get. Believe me, I got a dog. I can show you that dog eats anything but nails. And that dog is is one fat, happy little guy. And he's not going to look in the mirror and say, wow, I really need to put off some weight. I'm self-conscious of what the other dogs are going to think. No, they don't care. Right? They don't care. Uh, They don't look in the mirror and say, what do I want to do with my life? They know what they want to do with their life, eat and sleep and live off of you. That's what they want to do with their life. All right. So animals are purely instinctual. So in that way, it's very clear. They're not made in the image of God, but we are. We're like God on a limited scale in that we have a spirit man that can fellowship with God intimately. Aren't you glad for that? We were just worshiping Him, and you know what we were doing? We were fellowshipping with Him in our spirit, man. Our inner man was fellowshipping with God. God is Spirit, and He created us with the ability to walk with Him in our spirit. Um, Paul said in one place, he wrote to the Corinthians, Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen. It's a blessing at the end, and he says, "May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God." And watch this, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Koinonia, the koinonia, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Has has it ever occurred to you that as you go through the day, and, and I don't know about you, but I pray in my heart a lot, okay? And I talk to God all the time without necessarily saying anything verbal. But you know what I'm doing? I'm fellowshipping with him in my inner man. See, a dog can't do that. A bird can't do that. A fish can't do that. Only we can do that because we're created in the image of God. All right, so I could go longer on that, but time won't permit. Just suffice it to say, it is so. It is such a blessing uh, that God has given us the ability to speak, conceptualize, think, ponder, meditate, philosophize, all the things that nothing else can do but us. Amen? Amen? Now, then we note that Genesis goes on into mentioning gender. Now, the Bible is the word of God. It's breathed out of God. There's not a wasted word in the original manuscripts, in the original writings. There's not a wasted word. Everything God said, he had intention. He never spoke a word that he didn't intend. So he wanted us to get that when he made us in his image, he also made us of gender. He made us two genders. Now, if that didn't matter, he wouldn't have said it. But it matters, so he said it. So he says, uh, male and female made he them. God created mankind, male and female. Two genders. Only two genders. Everybody say only two. How many are there out there now? There's some job descriptions or applications you can fill out now. And you have a choice of like 15 genders. It's crazy. Or even more than that. No, 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 no. That's insanity. That's not sound. That's crazy, baby. Okay? Because God says, I made you two. Male or female. Um, And in mentioning them, he also tells us why he made us male and female. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So God created mankind, male and female, for the purpose of marriage and multiplication. He said, go and and replenish the earth, multiply and fill the earth with humankind. And that's why he made male and female. Now, I'm going to be real straightforward with you. I'm going to be blunt because you know why? Our culture is being very blunt. And so I'm going to be blunt back. I'm going to tell you straight up, two women or two men cannot be fruitful and multiply. Okay? Okay. It goes directly against the divine order. God is telling us, you know, a car maker makes a car. He knows why he made the car. You know why he made the car. You go into the car parking lot to buy a car because you want to go from point A to point B in that vehicle. That vehicle is made to get you from one place to another. The car was made with an intent. God is no different. He made male and female with an intent that we would be fruitful and multiply and be married till the day that we die, till death do us part. He established marriage in the garden, and he established the genders. It couldn't be more clear than this. Now, I don't pretend to personally know about the gender troubles that some people experience. I've had my struggles. There are areas in my life that took a lot of spiritual battle for me to finally overcome through the years. One of them was not this, but I have talked to people and listened to people weep in my presence who were struggling with this, this gender identity. Uh, you know, you hear things like, I'm, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, or I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. And there is genuine confusion. I, I've had I've had people look at me with tears in their eyes and say, I've never been ever attracted to somebody of the opposite sex. What do I do? And my heart has gone out to them. I can't personally identify with that, but I can feel their pain. And I'm certainly not up here to mock anybody or to poke fun at somebody's expense. I'm not here to do that at all. The question was, how do you address gender struggles? So sometimes I will say, all right, Jeff, if you were dealing with a gender confusion issue, what would you do? How would you handle it? How would you get help? What would you do? Well, I know what I would do. I can only speak for Jeff. I know what I would do. The first thing I would do is I would go to the word of God to see what the word of God has to say to me about it. And I would look for my answers beginning there and I would go to God in prayer. Because if God tells me I made you male and female so that you would be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, then God knew what he was doing. And and for me, that gives me sort of a a starting point, a a place of stability, a a, a place where I can land and at least start there and work my way forward from there. I know that God made me male or made me female, all right? And, And let's face it, when you're born, there's no anatomical mystery about what you are. You're either a boy or you're a girl and you're not an uh, an it or I've, I've even read folks and this is how wacky our culture has gone. It was in Hollywood, of course, but a couple of Hollywood actors had um, uh, had a child and they said, well, we've decided not to name it until it has decided what gender it is. And then we will name it according to the gender it tells us it is. Now, I'm sorry, for me, that's child abuse. Can you imagine being a little three-year-old guy? Well, what do you think you are yet, Johnny? I don't know. Just give me some marbles to play with. How in the world can I decide my gender? I mean, folks, come on. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. See, when you depart from God and you put the Bible down, listen carefully to me. I know what I'm saying. I've studied the his, different history civilizations in the, in the history of this world, and, and, and I know what the Bible says. When you put the Bible down, which is full of absolute truth, irrefutable truth, unbendable truth that doesn't reshape itself or reconfigure itself to fit into different cultures, no. The Word of God is always the Word of God, and the truth of the Word of God is unapologetically always the Word of God, and it does not bend or shape or fix itself or twist itself to fit a culture. And when you put the Word of God down, look what happens to that culture. I can take us to the 1960s and show you what has happened to our culture when we really slammed the door on the authority of the word of God, and went our own way. We took God out of the schools, God out of our teachers' mouths. We took the commandments off the wall. We we began to squelch and suppress the mention of Christ, the mention of the Bible, quoting of scriptures, in, in sporting events, high school football events, you name it. All throughout the ins and outs of, of our culture, we began to suppress the truth and, and put the truth of the Bible out. And we brought... Uh, we brought in our own thoughts, our own ways, what we consider to be right and wrong. And we became the judge of our own truth. Don't tell me what your truth is. I got my truth. You got your truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. No, 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 no. There's one, there's one irrefutable, undeniable truth on all things. And it's found in God's God breathed out word. It comes from a God who is not confused. About anything. Today, we have so departed from God that in some states, we're allowing young elementary school-aged children to decide whether they identify as a boy or a girl. If a boy says, in some school systems, right now as I speak, if he says to his teacher, teacher, I think, really, I'm a girl in a boy's body, The teachers are being forced to address them in that gender. Again, this to my mind is child abuse. How does a child know anything about that? No. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at a newborn baby and discern whether it's a boy or a girl. Do I have an amen? amen. So again, if I were personally struggling with this issue, it would be a great comfort to me. It would be a comfort to me to know that God made me the gender that I am and work my gender identity out from that starting point. Now, I don't have all the answers. And again, I'm not poking fun at anybody. Everybody has their spiritual struggles and they're very intense. But if I'm struggling with that, I want to know what God says to me about it and how I can start from there and, and, and move forward. So that's the best that I can do in the short time that we have,
1: and I hope that helps. <clears throat> question number two: There are people that say they die and go to heaven, but get sent back to earth. How is this possible if the Bible says we are to die only once and then judgment?
0: Okay, that's a great question. There are people who die and they are brought back for whatever reason. We have uh, we have medical um, stuff now that if somebody dies they might be brought back. And there we hear these different visions of heaven and so on and so forth. And um, so the, the verse that they're mentioning is out of Hebrews 9, 27. And it's very definitive. It says, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And that is a fact for all mankind, all right? Everybody dies, everybody. We don't come back as something else per the false teaching of reincarnation. You do not. You don't come back as a cricket or a cow or a bird or a flower. You don't come back. You're not coming back. When you die, you immediately go to face God. Now, this is not negated. This truth is not negated by the experience of some people who, for whatever reason, die and are brought back. Lazarus died. Lazarus had two funerals. Can you imagine that? He had two funerals. Lazarus died, and he was brought back by the resurrection power. Of Jesus Christ. And that was a type. That was a picture that the Lord Jesus gave you and me. To show us that that he is the resurrection. He is the life. And he can talk to somebody. And command somebody stone cold dead. To come up back from the grave. Back into life. He can do it. And and that's why he raised Lazarus. Because he told Mary and Martha. Don't you get it yet? I am the resurrection. I am the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then said to them, do you believe that? So I ask you, do you believe that? Yes. The same power that Jesus uh, exerted when he raised Lazarus, he will use to raise us. And if we happen to be walking around on earth when he returns, you're going up by the same power that brought Lazarus out of that grave. The same power, the word of God will take you up into the sky, into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, um, in fact, three people in the Old Testament and five in the New Testament were resurrected. Eight people in the Bible were resurrected from the dead. And I contend that every one of those God was showing us. I want you to understand that I am the resurrection and I will raise you from the dead. So my answer to that question is the few that do come back by uh, medical machinations or, or, or whatever brings them back um, does not negate the overall universal principle that when you die, you die once, and that's it. And that's why I tell people all the time, listen, be sure you get your life right with God now because you're going to have one chance. This life is so brief. Have you ever thought about it? We've got eternity stretching behind us. We have eternity stretching in front of us. And we're a blink sandwiched in between two eternities. But that brief time on this earth decides your eternal future. And that's what Jesus Christ, the son of God said. And so, though it is brief, it's extremely important most important decision you'll ever make. What are you going to do with Jesus? Not your career, not who you marry, not where you live, not where you go to church, not who you run with, not how much money you make. The most important decision you'll ever make is what you do
1: with Jesus. That's it. All right. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why was the point, why was that point in the history the right time for Christ to die?
0: Okay, that's a great question. Um, and all I can do is go to the Bible again, because that's where the answer is found. Uh, just, just so you'll know, that's out of Romans 5-6, but Paul the Apostle in Galatians 4-4 repeats the same thing. He says, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, the word there is the right time, at the right time. There was a right time for Jesus Christ to be sent. And more than anything else, it was the right time because it was the time God the Father chose to send his son. It was neither too soon nor too late. But in that very point of time, which the wisdom of God knew was best, he sent his son in the fullness of time. Now, this may not be the greatest illustration in the world, but let's pretend we're filling a cup up with water. And when it's full, we're going to drink of it. Pretend that illustrates all the history that happened between the prophets predicting Jesus would come, The 400 years of prophetic silence between Malachi and Matthew, between Malachi and John the Baptist preaching repent and the New Testament unfolding and opening up before us, Jesus being born as a babe in Bethlehem, all those centuries that passed, um, that was the cup being filled up. That was the cup of water being filled up. And there were things that needed to happen, prophetic fulfillments. Uh, the right cultures coming along, the, the right setting for the son of God to arrive. Now, we would look at it and say, wow, I would never have waited many, many centuries to send my son. As soon as Malachi was done with his prophecy, I would have sent Jesus right then. But guess what? You're not God. He is. Or he's God. You're not. I'm not. I don't know why God waits so long to do some things. Can I tell you the truth? God waited a long time to send his son the first time. And as far as I'm concerned, he's waiting a long time to send him the second time. Because I look at this world of suffering and pain and I say, if I were God, I'd wrap this thing up today. How many of you would do the same thing? All right, but guess what? He's God, I'm not. And he has just the right time to send his son the second time. So this is a a real illustration for us. Because when Malachi closed out his prophecy, 400 years went by. 400 years, four centuries went by. And, uh, you know, Alexander the Great and all the things that happened, all the historical events that went down during those four centuries. And and you wonder, why would God wait that long? People living in darkness, people not knowing the way to to salvation, uh, all the suffering, murders, pain, sickness, disease. There were plagues during that time. Why would God wait 400 years before sending Jesus to be born the baby in Bethlehem, why would he wait? Why would that be the right time? You know what the answer is? Because it was the right time. You know why? Because God said so. And now since Jesus has ascended back into heaven, 21 centuries have gone by. Why is God waiting so long? I don't know, but I do know this. He knows the right time. He knows the fullness of time. And in the fullness of time, whenever that time is, remember Jesus told the disciples, he said, it's not for you to know the day or the hour. He said, you just get busy with kingdom business because I'm not going to tell you the time. He says, as a matter of fact, only the father knows. Only the father knows. And somewhere in the hidden, deep, inscrutable counsel of almighty creator God, there is a time. And it will be the day, and it will be the hour, and it will be the moment that God the Father turns to God the Son and says, that's it, go get your bride. And a trumpet will blow, and the Lord will shout, and the voice of the archangel will cry out. And in that time, wrapped up in the counsels of God, suddenly, at that moment, you and I Blood washed, washed in the blood of the Lamb, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, are instantly going to be looking Jesus in the face. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. But the right time is his time, and I trust that time. Amen? Come on, give the Lord a hand of praise. We might look back in history and see many reasons why it was the right time for Jesus to... Uh, be born. First, it was the time when all the prophecies regarding his first coming as the babe born in Bethlehem were fulfilled, and there could be no doubt about their fulfillment. Secondly, and I think this is a big one, the world had had ample time to see its need for a savior. Man had tried in every way to become right with God through religion and his own best efforts. And he realized over and over again, I can't do it. And man abysmally failed to be right with God, to perfectly obey his word. And God let us learn that lesson real well in the time that it took for Jesus to come. This is why Paul wrote, writes in Galatians 319. Why then was the law given? Was the law given for you and me to obey it perfectly? Is that why the law was given? Yes, no? No, the law was not given so that we would perfectly obey it. The law was given to show us we couldn't obey it. The law was given to show us God's standard of righteousness. And because we are fallen in our natures, we have Adam's nature, Adam's sinful bent, We we are born in sin, shaped in iniquity. God wanted us to see beyond the shadow of a doubt. If he gave us a million years, we could never live up to his standard of righteousness. So the law was given to really to whip us into grace. Because we knew I cannot do it. I get this this commandment right and I go and I blow the other one. I, I get that one right, I blow this one. James made it really tough when James said, if you fail in one of them, you have failed in all of them. Well, then I'm sunk. But see, that's what God wants all of us to say. I'm sunk. I can't do it. Lord, I can't do it. I cannot live according to your standard of righteous Good. Because the way I'm about to save you has nothing to do with you and everything to do with me. By grace, you are saved through faith. Let's say that together. By grace, I am saved through faith. And he says, not of yourselves. You had nothing to do with it. Not a thing you and I did saved us. No, no. Religion is do, 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 do. But Christianity is done, 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 done. He did it. And if I, when I place my faith in Jesus Christ then his righteousness is imputed to me. It's a gift to me. So amazing. You know, when I speak on this, I just want to lift my hands and say, Lord, thank you for amazing grace. How sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. Because there I was so lost, living in such darkness, headed straight for hell on a high-speed train. And God's grace reached down and touched me. And I was convicted of my sin. And and the Holy Ghost brought me into the presence of the Lord and led me to the cross. I heard that gospel. And the gospel was the power of God to salvation for me. I heard it. And it had power in it. And I believed it. And when I believed it, the Holy Ghost was sent to live inside of me. And my sin was washed away. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf so that I could be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen? Amen? So I think one of the reasons that God waited so long is the human race saw beyond the shadow of a doubt, hey, I cannot live up to his standards. What will I do? What will I do? Paul goes on and says, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. And now we are saved by grace, not our works. Amen. I think another reason might be just looking back is the vastness of Rome and the superiority of Roman roads. It was a perfect time for the spreading of the gospel throughout the land once Jesus ascended and went back into heaven. Uh, All these roads made it so easy for preachers to go and bring the gospel to the world. It's just a thought but God waited till the right time. So in hindsight, we can see these things and many other reasons for why it was the right time. But ultimately it was God himself in his infinite wisdom that decided on the timing and God himself in his infinite wisdom is going to decide the timing of when we go up. Amen. 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 Can we trust him?
1: Amen. Amen. All right. All <clears> right. <throat> Has anyone noticed that certain Bibles are changing words? A Bible was recently gifted to me that has different words than my old Bible. I have many examples, but one example is in Mark 2.22. The new Bible changed the word wineskins to bottles. Does that not change the whole meaning? Okay, and another person asked a similar question. Oh, another person asked a similar question. What do you think about the passion translation? It seems to change a lot of words and says things not found in my other Bible.
0: Okay. Now, everybody put on your thinking caps because I'm going to talk to you about the importance of translation. How many of you know that Jesus did not speak in King James? <laughs> Amen? A- Amen. He did not say thou wouldest, shouldest, couldest, or any of that. No. Uh, we are all uh, recipients of translations. Now, let me talk to you about it because it matters. Because the Bible is God's truth. How many of you think that matters? All right? Yes, it does. So, before I comment further, I want to read a warning from the book of Revelation. Listen to Revelation twenty-two eighteen. 18. Now, this is the end of the Bible. This is the end of the, the, what we call the final canon of Scripture, C-A-N-O-N. The final words of the book. It's about to close now from Genesis to Revelation. We're in the last chapter of Revelation. So the Bible's about to be completed. Now watch this. John writes, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Now this is Jesus speaking through John, by the way. If anyone adds to them, to what everybody? The Bible. Okay. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Whoa. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. How many of you can say, I don't want to mess with the Bible. Okay. So here is a clear warning from God to anybody handling the word of God, including Bible translators. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Now, I want you to keep that verse in mind as we move along. Now, you need to understand that your Bible, all right, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek. The reason that some words may change from translation to translation rests at the feet of the translators themselves, okay? And I'm going to show you what they do. The job of a translator is to take the original language, Greek or Hebrew, and translate the Hebrew or Greek into another language, in our case, English. They must search, as they're translating, for the English words that give the the meaning, the best meaning of the Hebrew or Greek words they're translating from. For instance, let me give you a simple example. And I'm going to put it up here. Everybody sit, look up there and say, that's Greek to me. But let me just kind of give you an idea of what a translator would do. And I've got a little, there, how many, if you can see that dot, say amen. amen. Follow the bouncing ball. Okay. Now, if I'm a Bible translator, all right, then I'm in the New Testament. Now, this is John 1.1. It's real simple Greek. Okay, I know this is Greek to you, but it's real simple Greek. Okay, now this is John 1.1. 1, 1. Now, if I'm a Bible translator, I'm going to read this. And it's my job to take it from Greek and bring it into English so you can understand it. You with me? So I'm going to show you the way it would read. It reads like this. And arche ain halagos, kai halagos, ain prostantheon, kai ain halagos. Say, that's Greek to me. Again, it's Greek. Now, if I'm going to translate it, I need the next one up there, guys. If I'm going to translate it, it's going to read like that. But I wanted them both together. We can't get them both together? Okay. Well, that's too bad. That's what I was hoping for. Anyway, if I'm translating it, no, 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 that's wrong. That's not even the right verse. I'm sorry. (laughs) I want John 1, 1. Everybody say, praise God. The devil does not want this being understood. I want John 1.1. 1, 1. I can just read it to you from here. In the beginning, NRK, in, in the beginning, en halagos was the word. Kai halagos and the word. En pros theon was God. Kaifaos and God, ein halagos, was the Word. Now your English translation says in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The original Greek says, and God was the Word. But can you see that it's the same meaning? Now the only difference, the only change I'm going to make as a translator in this is it says enarchae, and that just means, there it is, in beginning, oh good, they've got the Greek and the English. Hallelujah, give them a hand. All right, here it is. So everybody say "ain," "in," "ark," "beginning," "ain," "was," "halagos," the word "kai," and "halagos," the word "ain," "prostontheon," was with God. Kai theos and God, and halagos was the word. There you go. Now the only difference that I made is a as a translator, or that I would make, and it's in your Bible. It doesn't say in beginning because that doesn't make English sense. We're going to put a the in there, right? But does the mess anything up with the understanding of it? No. It just makes it uh, English, all right? Better understood in English. So in the beginning, I would put a V in there as the translator. But for the most part, for the rest of it, my job is to pull it from Greek to English. Are you with me? That's my job as a translator. Now, you can go out of here to a restaurant and say, I learned Greek tonight. So... As a translator, looking at that, your job is to translate as faithfully as you can what the writer originally wrote. Nothing more, nothing less. Isn't that what Revelation 22 said? You better not add to it. You better not take away from it. Just as it was written, translate it and give the people what it said. With the good translations we have, like the KJV, the King James, the New King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, NASB, the English Standard Version, the ESV, the NLT, the New Living Translation, and so on. Listen carefully to me now, because this matters a lot to the Bible you hold in your hand. A team, everybody say team, of translators came together who were highly proficient in Hebrew and Greek. At least 60 men we were involved in translating the KJV. Sixty translated the King James. A hundred and thirty-person team translated the New King James Version. 130 people translated the N, which is the one I study with, NKJV. Including Greek, Hebrew, and English scholars, editors, church leaders, and Christian laity. All together, it took 130 people seven years to translate it. Makes you appreciate it more, doesn't it? I mean, it makes you so thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Now, um, more than 50 men with earned doctorates in biblical languages worked on the translation of the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, which I think is one of the top translations. And the story is the same for any good Bible translation. Say it with me again, team. It was a team of translators. Together they worked on the translation, and in mutual agreement produced their work. And sometimes in order to translate a Greek word into English, they chose a word English-speaking people might better understand, like exchanging wineskin for bottle, which was the question in the first place. And yes, for the record, I don't think that was a great choice. Give me wineskin, keep your bottle. But it doesn't damage the original meaning. Can you see that with me? So badly that it's heretical or ruins the writer's intent. Which brings us to the passion translation. I'm not passionate about the passion. My, my job as a pastor is to teach you the word of God. And my, my calling is to protect you from things that damage you spiritually. That's what a shepherd does. I, I attack the wolves. Now... Brian Simmons is the man who wrote the Passion Translation. He's the, he's the author of the Passion Translation. I don't know Brian Simmons. This has nothing to do with a personality with me. Nothing. I don't know him. I've never met him. He may be a, a great guy. I, I have, it's, this is not personal. But, I've gotta tell you that the Passion Translation, since I was asked about it, is not a translation at all. It's written primarily by one man, Brian Simmons, who claims that in 2009, Jesus Christ literally visited him in his room, breathed on him, and commissioned him to write a new translation of the Bible. Now, if you don't know about the Passion Translation of the Bible, it's selling like hotcakes, particularly among charismatic churches. It's, it's, it's really sold a lot. And it's making inroads into mainline, mainstream, denominational churches. I have to say something from a theological, biblical standpoint since I was asked about this. All right. Simmons claimed in an interview, and you can look it up yourself. He said, it felt like heaven's wind when I was visited by God. The rock, the breath. The wind of God came upon me, and he, God, spoke to me and said, I'm commissioning you to translate the Bible into the translation project that I'm giving you to do. And he promised that he would help me. I'm I'm just quoting him now. He promised that he would help me, and he promised me that he would give me secrets of the Hebrew language. Simmons went on to claim that by blowing on him, Jesus gave him secrets. The spirit of revelation, he claims, he breathed on me so that I would do the project and I felt downloads coming. That means from heaven. Instantly, I received downloads. It was like I got a chip put inside of me. I got a connection inside of me to hear him better, to understand the scriptures better and hopefully to hopefully to translate. Hopefully. Okay. Simmons said, and this matters to me and it should matter to you, said that our translations, all the translations through the 20 centuries of Christianity, our translations of the Bible transcribed by hundreds of scholars from the original scrolls are just head knowledge and don't adequately capture God's passion. You wonder how he arrived at that since 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us every word in the Bible is breathed out by God. How in the world that's not emotional, I don't know, or passionate. But I'm just telling you what he said. Okay, I got a comment on this, and I won't linger long, but I, but I want to just clear this clear this question up. Okay, what I just read him saying is, is problematic on a lot of levels. First, he mentions secrets in the Hebrew language. What could that mean? We have men and women with earned doctorates in Hebrew who can assure us there are no secrets of the Hebrew language. You either know it or you don't. Second, he's basing his translation on downloads. Now, that makes me nervous. Because immediately were, we're being told by Mr. Simmons that what he wrote is straight from Jesus. So how can we contest it if it's straight from Jesus in the form of a download? He's telling us this is not translation work. It's a personal revelation work. Do you know this is what Joseph Smith of the Mormons said and Muhammad of Islam claimed? To be the way they received the Book of Mormon and the quran A download, a revelation, a visitation from an angel? They were not translators And Brian Simmons is not an expert in the languages at all. He said, I hope he helps me to translate. There's no team of translators here like I showed you. There has been with every other good translation. There's one man getting downloads. Saying, this is is what it says. Though I don't know Hebrew. And I don't know Greek. He later claimed that he did have help. But he never gives the names or the qualifications of the helpers, though he has been asked to. Let me give you a couple of examples of the PT translation and I'm done because we're running out of time. Consider Simmons translation of Galatians 6-6 in the KJV. It reads, let him that is taught in the word, look up there with me. Everybody say communicate Communicate. unto him that teacheth in all good things. Now that's Galatians 6-6 in the KJV. Um, the word "communicate" up there that you're looking at is translated from a Greek word meaning to share practical things. Uh, as it's translated in all other translations of the Bible, it is about sharing material things with those whose full-time job is to teach the Word of God. You shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. All right. So, so uh, the the laborer is worthy of his hire. It's talking about taking care of the practical needs of your Bible teacher, food, finances, whatever, okay? But compare this to the Passion Translation. Here's what it says. And those who are taught the word will receive an impartation from their teacher. A transference of anointing takes place between them. Huh? That's not what it says at all. This has nothing to do with the meaning of the verse. And it has nothing to do with the Greek text at all. There's no mention of transference of anointing in the Greek text that this is supposed to be translated from. uh, Or impartation from a teacher. As a matter of fact, it's all about the student helping the teacher with practical needs. That's all it's about. The original Greek says it's fitting that teachers should be helped by their students as much as they are able with things necessary for their subsistence. That's, that's all the verse is about. But he has totally added something utterly that's not there. Remember what Revelation 22 said. If you add to or take away, watch out. Sometimes entire clauses are inserted for no obvious reason. So in Romans 1.8, the New King James Version says, look at it up there. First, I thank my God. Through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And keep that in mind. The passion renders it. I give thanks to God for all of you. Because it's through your conversion to Jesus Christ that you are becoming. You are becoming well known. Not your faith. You are becoming well known. For the testimony of your strong, persistent faith is spreading throughout the world. Now, where on earth does this lengthy insertion come from? It's not in the original, period. Bible scholar Dr. Andrew Wilson writes, quote, The Passion air quotes translation inserts all kinds of concepts Words and ideas of which the original gives no hint whatsoever. Old Testament scholar and NIV translation committee member. So here's somebody speaking on the Passion Translation that was involved in translating the NIV. Dr. Andrew Shiad, I I guess, or Sheed or Shiad, is even stronger. Quote, the Passion Translation is not a Bible abandoning all interest in textual accuracy, playing fast and loose with the original languages, and inserting so much new material into the text that it's almost at least 50% longer than the original. The result is a strongly sectarian translation that no longer counts as scripture, end quote. I didn't say that. A true Bible scholar said that. I guess you get that I'm not a fan of the Passion. and I can tell you, also, on a lesser degree, I'm not a fan of the message. Um, you got to be so careful. Listen, here's what you want, and I'm going to leave you with this and let us go home. You need a good Bible translation for your Bible study and devotional reading. Again, let me say the New American Standard Bible, great one. King James, of course, Jesus spoke in it. New King James, New Living Translation, the ESV. These are some translations you can be confident in. Because I don't know about you folks, but I want the word of God when I read the Bible. Right? All right. I'm done. Let's stand together. That was going through some deep waters tonight.